On this vote, the yeas are 263, the nays are 171. The motion is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money podcast. Today is Friday, October 3rd. It's about 5.03 p.m. here in New York. I'm Laura Conaway. That noise you just heard was the sound of the House of Representatives passing the $700 billion Wall Street bailout bill today. The Dow and the S&P 500 each fell after the news broke, which rattled a few of our friends on Twitter. We're at twitter.com slash planetmoney. But really, we're just talking about a couple of percentage points here. Nothing like the big 778-point plunge we saw on Monday after the House spiked an earlier version of the rescue. Now comes the work of figuring out exactly what this novel-length legislation includes. You know, Planet Money is a collaboration with This American Life. Adam Davidson sat down with host Ira Glass to talk today about an alternate plan that may have wormed its way into this bill's language. Their conversation is part of a special edition of This American Life that's airing this weekend. It's the second special edition we've done. The first was in May about the subprime housing crisis. Here are Adam and Ira this morning, starting off with a question from a listener. Well, we got a, an email on Wednesday from a listener uh, named Will Chan. Let me just read this. Dear Ira, Alex, Adam, and gang. I hate it when they call us gang. Uh, you are our only hope. Please do a show that clearly explains the question, should we support the bailout? If the answer is no, what other options do we have? I'm not dumb or lazy. In addition to listening to NPR and the BBC religiously, I also read, and then he lists all the uh, publications that he reads. There's so much confusion out there, I really don't know who to trust. After a lot of soul-searching in the last couple of days, I realized there is only one source of information I trust without question, and that is This American Life. <laughs> yeah, that is a sad state of affairs. That is a really sad, poor, poor guy. Um, please help us understand this bailout. Okay, so, um, so Adam? Yes. What's the answer? Is the bailout a good idea or not? All right. Let me let me say what is clear, crystal clear to me after spending the last several weeks doing nothing but reporting this crisis. It is a severe and scary crisis. And the more I report it, the more scared I have been. It is also clear that spending $700 billion will help. I mean, you throw $700 billion at a problem, you're going to make the problem less bad. But it's also very clear that the plan we've been hearing all about, the Paulson plan, has a lot of problems. There are a lot of things that a lot of people do not like about it. Right. And we've been hearing about that in the news. But do you want to just run through some of the big points? Yeah. So some of the big things people don't like about the plan. I mean, the main thing is there's all these crappy assets that the banks don't want and the U.S. government is about to buy them. And so we're about to be the proud owners of $700 billion of crap. Mm-hmm. Also, these assets have absolutely no price. That is the cause of this crisis. These assets are not moving. These are these mortgage-related investments, these mortgage-related securities that no one is willing to buy. And when you can't buy anything, you don't know what the price of it is. So by definition, the government is going to have to make up. They're going to have to invent 
a price. And if they go too low, they're going to ruin the banks. They're going to give them too little money to save them. They're actually going to make the problem worse. If the government pays too much, well, then the taxpayer has lost out a lot of money. And the right. Banks, then we're just getting ripped off. Then we're just getting ripped off. So you have to find this magical price that no one knows what it is. So it's really, really complicated. So they're going to have to invent a way to do that, and it's going to be some sort of difficult process. Yes. It's, it's a very circuitous way to solve the problem. The problem is banks don't have enough money, so they're not lending money, and that's freezing up the economy. And this is a very complicated way to get money to the banks. Now, for the last two weeks, uh, while Congress has been debating the Paulson plan and various versions of that, I understand that there's been another way to do the bailout. There's a whole different approach to doing the bailout that lots of economists say is better in a bunch of ways. Yeah, Alex and I have been surveying as many economists as we can find. We've been calling and reading and and you know, you can never get a whole lot of economists to agree on anything, but I would say of of the economists we've surveyed and I mean left-wing, right-wing, libertarian, more progressive, a clear majority of the ones we've surveyed, well over half prefer another plan. They don't like the Paulson plan as the best plan. They say there's this other thing called a stock injection plan that is clearly better. Okay, stock injection plan. Now, how does this one work? All right. So 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 in the Paulson plan, what we're doing is giving $700 billion to the to the banks and then in return we get all these toxic assets, these crappy assets. We take it off their hands. We take it off their hands. With, with a stock injection plan, we still give something like $700 billion to the bank, but in return we get an ownership share of the bank. We get to become stockholders, owners, the taxpayer, the government becomes an stockholders and owners of the banks. And so how is that better? It, it's better. First of all, it's just simpler. You, you avoid that whole crazy pricing of mysterious, mystical asset problem because you just you give $10 billion to a bank and then you get a $10 billion share in the bank. It's a much simpler mathematical problem. Mm-hmm. Also, a lot of the economists I talk to say it's just fairer. It's a better deal for the taxpayer because in, in the Paulson plan, we end up owning all these lousy assets. We don't know what they're worth. If they go down in value, we're just on the hook for all of that. In the stock injection plan, we not only own stock, we would own something called preferred stock, which means it's kind of complicated how it works, but basically the taxpayer is the last one to lose money. The The shareholders of the bank would lose their money before we taxpayers would lose money. So, so we're more protected. We're more likely to actually make money out of this deal and less likely to lose money. So if this is better for the taxpayers... Why wouldn't we do that? Like, who's against this? There are a bunch of people against it. Uh, one big group is sort of conservative Republicans. They've said they just don't fundamentally in their guts don't like the idea of the U.S. government owning shares of private companies. It just smells like socialism to them and they can't support it. Mm-hmm. But maybe more importantly, banks really, really hate this idea. Um, look at what happened to AIG, the big insurance giant, because that's sort of what the government did. They, they bought a huge share of the bank. They all but zeroed out the value of the share. So all the current shareholders of AIG just lost billions of dollars. Their stock is just worth yeah, virtually nothing. Mm-hmm. And the government fired the chief executive of AIG, completely took it over. See, I like that. I like that these guys end up getting punished under this plan. Yeah, that, a lot of 
that's not just a moral issue or a political issue. I mean, that's an actual economic issue. An economy works better when people pay the cost for bad decisions. And the Paulson plan doesn't do that as much as a stock injection plan. Mm -hmm. So from the bank's perspective, this is absolutely a no-brainer. Let's say I gave you two options, Ira. One option is I come, I give you a thousand bucks, and I take all the crap out of your basement, and you get to keep the thousand bucks. That's the Paulson plan. The other option is I come, I give you a thousand bucks, and I get to move into your house. I become a co-owner of the house. I might get to kick you out of the house and take all your stuff. I mean, from the bank, the bank's perspective is from the shareholders, from the executives, it's a no-brainer. Of course, they like the Paulson plan, and the bank lobby is a powerful, huge lobby. You can just imagine how powerful they are, how many strings they can pull on Capitol Hill. Oh, and they, and they and they would oppose anything like that. I talked to a bank lobbyist. He told me there are over 600 professional lobbying groups. Thousands of people are working hard to promote the Paulson plan and to weaken any stock injection plan. Well, weaken that is, is if it, as if it were ever actually seriously considered. Well, that's what's interesting. Until last night... You and I are talking Friday morning at, uh, at 11.20. At 11.20. We're waiting for the House to vote. Until last night, Thursday, I and everyone, I, all the experts I talked to, all the people on Capitol Hill, were under the impression the stock injection plan was simply not on the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you and I worked late last night. I was in, my ca- in a cab on the way home. I got a call from a guy I know who's pretty well connected right around midnight, and he told me, guess what? The stock injection plan is in the Senate bill that was passed, and it's in the House bill. I woke up this morning, and I still could barely believe it. I've been calling around. It was very—it was kind of a dramatic morning. The first few people I called said, no, that's ridiculous. There's no way that could have gotten in. That's impossible. Over the course of the morning, I got more and more confirmation. And basically what happened is someone, and we still don't know who, put in very subtle language into the Senate bill that gives this as an option to the Treasury Secretary. There's still the main plan, which is buying the crappy assets. That's still the core idea. But the Treasury Secretary has as an option, at his discretion, the ability to do this other plan, the one that many economists prefer, the stock injection plan. Okay, so at least that's in there. Overall, to get back to the original question, should we support the plan that's coming through Congress now? It is not hyperbole to say that there is a severe financial crisis. All these dire warnings you're hearing, this is, this is not Wall Street fat cats trying to make some money. This is serious. Alex and I have seen it. This week we saw the crisis spread to Europe, which had been saying that they were immune to it. It's already seeping out to Main Street or whatever cliche you want. Right, it's, in the ways that we reported in the way we've re- In the ways we've been telling you about. The majority of economists I have talked to would say the following. This crisis is severe. It's going to get worse. Something needs to be done. The original plan was not great. This plan is a lot better. This plan is probably the best we can get. And something has to happen sooner than later. Well, Adam, uh, thank you for another frightening hour. Yeah, this one scares me a lot more than the last one. All right. Well, thank you, Adam. That was Adam Davidson speaking with This American Life host Ira Glass. On our blog, I started a thread about this stock injections provision. I think I found part of the language. You can take a look at npr.org slash money. Next up, 
David Kestenbaum takes a look at one of the stranger corners of the new bailout. The plan provides a tax exemption for the makers of wooden arrows for children. Jay Makinich, I guess you would call him an archery advocate. He says the tax break is misunderstood. You know, in reading through the newspaper this morning and looking at the, some of the blogs, uh, one particular subject of interest and occasional ridicule was this uh, line in the bailout bill, which had something to do with uh, an exemption from a tax for uh, wooden arrows. Can you explain what that is? I can. Uh, first of all, I've been really disappointed to see how many media outlets and others have run to their uh, blogs and newspapers and outlets to carry a story, and almost none. In fact, you're one of the very few that has even spoken to us or anyone involved in this situation. Um, the excise tax that currently exists on all arrows that are sold is 43 cents per arrow. Inadvertently, when that law was passed in 2005, we ended up taxing all arrows, and we and the language wasn't we weren't quick enough to catch it because it ended up taxing the toy arrows, the wooden and fiberglass arrows that are used by kids. These arrows have a cost uh, to produce of about 40 to 45 cents. The tax virtually doubles that, and then when you add in the other uh, provisions, these arrows uh, shot from about something less than a dollar to about a dollar and a half. So the tax was originally meant for uh, more expensive arrows? The, the tax is meant for more expensive arrows. In fact, the routine arrows that an Olympian or an archery shooter that shoots recreationally or a bow hunter would use or even teenage kids that are shooting competitively in their local uh, uh, areas, those arrows run anywhere from, say, about $8 a piece to maybe 10 or $12. Some of the very high-end arrows run about $15. So that's like a 5% tax on them, but for the kids' arrows, it was like a 50 or something percent tax. It literally doubled the cost of doing business in this particular situation. This is hitting scout troops, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. Uh, Kids who go around selling cookies and other kinds of things to raise money for this kind of equipment. It hits 4-H groups. It hits uh, police athletic leagues, boys and girls clubs. These are the folks who consume these cheapest of the cheap arrows and use them to give these kids recreation. Is this a $1 million provision? We we estimated from current production that this will cost the conservation agencies approximately a million dollars. Now the Joint Committee on Taxation scored it at two million, so it's between one and two million. No, but that would suggest that there would be a half million of these arrows sold in the United States every year. Oh, there's there's, there's more than that, depending on the year. Um, in fact, the total production sold in this country, we believe, of both wood and hollow fiberglass, those those all those arrows compete in the same market. They're sold to the same schools and the same programs. We estimate there's over two million of these arrows sold every single year. You know, now it seems like you're uh, you know you're a footnote on on this huge historical bill going through Congress. Well, and. Uh, to be honest, that's not a place we would have chosen to be. We would have liked to have had this done as a, as a matter of routine business. Um, but certainly, you know, like you said, it's, it's odd, odd to be in a, a footnote in such a significant bill to our country. All right. Uh, happy shooting. Thanks very much. Thank you. That's Jay McEninch. He is CEO and president of the Archery Trade Association. He says that, by the way, the tax on those arrows goes to state wildlife organizations. Then we had a long email exchange afterward. And uh, yes, in addition to benefiting church groups and Boy Scouts, the exemption to this tax would also help manufacturers of children's arrows because if the tax goes away and the price goes down, more people are going to buy them. That was David Kestenbaum talking to Jay McEninch. And finally, I caught up with one of my favorite currency analysts. His name is Wynn Thin. He works with Brown Brothers Harriman. 
On Monday, he sent out a banknote. It's this complicated little package of financial details about how the dollar and the renminbi and the yen and so on are trading. And on Monday, he sent out this banknote saying that he expected the economic downturn to be shallow and brief and over by the middle of next year. And then on Thursday, he sent out a note saying that a downturn is likely to be deeper and more prolonged. Really? Yes, and I think what changed over that time is recognition that you know, we were always a little bit worried of, about Europe, but the fact that we had basically one financial institution a day at least go to the government for aid or bailout rescue in Europe really hit home to how, how I guess, vulnerable Europe is. That's a big change. It must have been quite an experience for you to see those numbers start to come in. Yes. Um, and, you know, we've already been seeing weakness in, Euro, in the Eurozone numbers, and the U.K. as well, Japan, it's becoming more and more evident that, that A, the problems are deeper in Europe than that have been widely recognized, and B, policymakers have not acted on that. And, but, you know, we're all flying blind. We're all looking at the same data, the same numbers. It's sort of, you know, how do you look at, how do you want to interpret this? We are sort of on the optimistic side that, again, the, the U.S. policymakers have acted quickly. So, you know, the, the, the time frame of the bounce back, that's, uh, that's definitely open to question. There's that Shakespearean, I think Shakespeare quote, there's many a uh, slip twixt uh, cup and lip. And who knows what's going to happen? You know, if I had to choose, I'll, t- I'll put my money in the U.S. Thank you, Win Thin. So you guys out there have been asking about looming trouble in Europe? The answer is yes. And that's the Planet Money podcast for today, October 3rd. Keep an ear out for our special with This American Life this weekend. It's at thisamericanlife.org. We are at npr.org slash money. I'm Laura Conaway. Take care.